end all the documents and interviews you've done today. <laughs> all right, it's time to get on code where we talk about empowerment. And today we have the author, Chin Julie Wong from Beautiful Country. She's the author of the great book, Beautiful Country. Let's get on code. All right, welcome to Get On Code, The Fly Guy Show, which is a series of melanated conversations focused on empowerment, health, wealth, and knowledge of self. People think in binary choices because they are conditioned to. And on the wall was a picture of a wolf and a lion. I think the wolf was the Democratic Party, the lion was the Republicans. But the drug trade and all these illegal stuff that uh, people do, that's still economics. It's just that they couldn't do it in a traditional system. We're talking about melanated wealth. So we can build wealth, but we just, for some reason, don't seem to be able to transfer it. You had a great experience. Fine. That means nothing. What were you told as a child about education? You had to be how many times better? Every impression without an expression becomes depression. All right, time for a great episode of Get On Code, where we deal with empowerment. And today's episode, we have an intriguing conversation about it from an author who kind of details, you know, some early parts of her life. Uh, she actually spends some of that time in Brooklyn, New York. Peace out to Brooklyn. Brooklyn is a blood type. As uh, uh, Chin Julie said, you either know you're from there or you're not. <laughs> but she's the author of the great book that I'm truly enjoying, Beautiful Country. And uh, it's a beautiful day to, you know, interview such a beautiful person about such a beautifully written book. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into the questions. Well, let's go with the first question. I understand you wrote this book on your iPhone while you were commuting. Tell that story. That's that's empowerment. Tell that story. Yeah, so I wrote this story while uh, working on making partner at my big law firm. I was working about 80 hours a week, but felt compelled to write and share my stories of my time being undocumented in our early years in America. And I had no time in the day to write because I was on the computer or in the courtroom um, throughout the day. But I did realize there was a pocket of dead time in my daily commute. So I developed a very clean rule that whenever I was on the subway platform or on the subway train, I would be typing on my phone in the notes app. I also did not allow myself to use the delete button because I wanted this book to come out as raw and authentic and as vulnerable as possible. I say that. And so allowing your creativity to unfurl leads to empowerment. And I mean, you're a lawyer, so I'm assuming you're doing pretty well financially, but I'm sure with the success of this great book, you know, things are truly financially empowering. So a great success to you on that. Whew, let's get in some other questions. I, I just love the fact that you took your creativity. You took some dead time that most other people would say is just wasted time. They'd be scrolling on TikTok or on Facebook. And you created something that's really changing the lives of a lot of people. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting in your book is you detailed how to remain safe, the undocumented have to stay invisible. As a person of African descent and, you know, indigenous descent in America, we're often told to pipe down as well. So should the undocumented in America now do something different 
to gain a greater sense of empowerment or should they remain invisible? They should certainly not remain invisible, but as someone who grew up with the great fear of deportation, of being found out, I also understand that it's very difficult to speak up and speak your truth in that environment where your status necessarily requires you to stay quiet, to stay secret, to not draw any attention, which is all the more reason why I felt compelled as soon as I became citizen 22 years after I, I, I entered this country and four years after I, I got my law degree, four years after upon which I was supposed to be an expert in the legal system, it still took me a long time to become a citizen. Um, I felt compelled to write the story because I had a new power, a new privilege, and thus a new responsibility to speak up for those for whom it is still not safe to do so. And I am completely with you. I mean, Asian Americans, especially Asian American women are often told, I am being very assertive. I'm a litigator. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm loud. I'm often told I'm, I'm too much. I talk too much. But lucky for me, I have dissident blood. I have a rebellious streak. So the more that you tell me to pipe down, the louder I'm going to get. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I, I do think that we're in a time now where if we remain silent, we're going to remain silenced. So um, interesting point. Interesting point. Um, in your book and actually in some of the interviews, and I guess as you've kind of discussed the direction that you're moving, you said that the American dream is a unattainable idea. Now, when people say that, normally it's, oh, you, you're not a patriot, you hate America, you need to pipe down. Uh, what do you mean that the American dream is not an attainable idea? And is that anti-American? Let me get this out there. I criticize America because I love it. If I did not care about America, I would not even bother to try to make it a better place. And what I mean by the notion that the American dream is unattainable is that the traditional view and framing of the American dream is based on a system that was built by white men, majority, by a system that is in place now built to oppress specific communities, people of color, immigrants, the undocumented, people with disabilities. And so long as we buy into the vision created by that system, we are not going to break the system. And therefore, people of color will never be part of the system because it was built by default to oppress us. So what we need to do is redefine the American dream and dare to envision a dream, a society where the system that we create from scratch is the one that is in place. And that is where it is not someone crawling, clawing their way out from the lowest class up to the highest rungs of capitalist society, but a, but a country where there is no lowest rung, where there is equal access to public resources, where any child, regardless of what they look like, who they are, what their skin color is, has the ability, the safety to pursue their dreams and to feel comfortable and safe being their authentic selves. What if we rejected the pre-existing system as it were and dare to envision something entirely different? Intriguing. That, 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 that's really kind of a breath of fresh air 
<laughs> and I also heard the Brooklyn sirens in the background. So once again, peace out to Brooklyn. BK all day. Brooklyn is a blood type. In in your book, which everybody should buy. And if if you don't know what book I'm talking about, we're talking about the book Beautiful Country. Uh, in your book, you talk about you know watching PBS and some you know early children's cartoons, but also reading. So what power did you feel? What empowerment did you find in reading books? And how did that change the course of your life? Because I had left my entire family in China and all of my friends, I felt incredibly lonely in my early years in America. And it was also instilled in me very quickly that English fluency and literacy would be the way out of the underclass that it seems undocumented immigrants are often subjected to. So I went to the library and it was there among fictional characters and books that I found my very first American friends and family, uh, the Berenstain Bears, the Clifford the Big Red Dog, Amelia Bedelia. And it was in that safety, that first home that I built in America that I realized the power of storytelling and the power of narrative. It is the stories that we tell ourselves about our lives that govern our actions, whether we are children or adults. And if we can have that power to shift the perspective, shift the narrative somewhat and dare to dream of a different ending, then that gives us agency, um, particularly in situations and scenarios where we may feel out of control and out of power. And so it is that commitment and passion um, that drives my daily work as an author and as a lawyer. That's deep. And unfortunately, I think that's new. It's, it's within the last 10 years that this level of consciousness in American culture has really kind of developed. Um, would you agree with that or am I off base? I agree with that because, I mean... Back in those days when I was in the library, there, there was no one in those books that looked like me. There was definitely no one who was an immigrant or who was undocumented. And it, it caused me to wonder, was I the first, was my family and I, were we the first to live this way? I mean, that can't be. And if we are not reflecting all stories of people of color, immigrants across the spectrum, then it is harder for the white majority to build the empathy needed to understand that we are more alike than we are different, to understand that the human condition connects us all. I just had to pause and, and, and reflect on what you said there. So taking into account what you just stated, there are some watching and some who will listen later on who will say that she's blaming a white man. <laughs> and, you know, we hear all the time, you know, that, you know, that the most troubled person, the most stigmatized and attacked person in current American culture is the cisgender white male. What, what do you say when, if you've even heard that response or that, that feedback, that pushback? I don't think the response to judgment, that is judgment that comes from a certain direction toward people of color and women of color and immigrants, 
the there's no you can't cure that with more judgment. I don't think it's productive to say I am blaming the white man. What I am saying, I'm coming from a place of empathy. How can the white man know what it's like to be anything else when everywhere he goes, he sees himself reflected back at him? It's actually a tragedy that they do not, it's harder for them to see a different perspective. And added on top of that is the burden that they as a white man with the toxic masculinity and the idea of the fact that the white person in the room is supposed to be in charge, that's a lot of burden for any white boy to grow up carrying. So I feel that white supremacy and sexism is bad for all of us. I wouldn't say that the cisgender white man is the biggest victim, but I do think they are also victims to the system. And the way to fix that is to start a new system. Wow. Well, I, I definitely want to say peace to Patrick, who says big up, sister and bro. That's that's good to hear. Um, wow, that's that that's truly an interesting position. And I think it's a very progressive and it's a right. It's a correct position that you're stating. Um, so our next question is. You know, what is the lesson? You know, there's an empowerment lesson in your book. What is that lesson in how you and your family address poverty and being undocumented? I think I was lucky in that very early in life, I got to see the resilience of the human spirit tested. I think any parent would have done what my parents did had they been in the same situation where they had a young daughter who needed to be fed, who was going to school hungry every day, who's worried about rent and having a home to go back to. They would have gone from being professors to working in sweatshops or working in a sushi processing plant covered in ice cold water for 14 hours at a time. I think any loving parent would do that in a heartbeat. And so those years have taught me that humans, the human race is stronger than we give it credit for. And it's not until we are tested that our faith really appears, that our empowerment really appears. And I, I just think that is not unique to my parents and me, but that we were able to see it manifest earlier. Okay, next question. What's it like to live in poverty in the richest country in the world? In, in your book, you just, you really do an excellent job of bringing to life, not only your family's experience, but those around you. You know, um, when you talked about everyone living in that house and sharing the restroom and sharing the kitchen area and being overwatched, you know, an overlord, a, um, an overseer who was hiding in the closet, you know, uh, you were in, in roaches and, you know, sharing one slice of pizza. <laughs> yeah. Brooklyn pizza. So, um, I know the answer is read the book, <laughs> buy the book, read the book. And if you're not sure which book we're talking about, we're talking about the beautiful book, which is called Beautiful Country. She's the author. I was one of the readers. You should be one of the readers. So, um, you know, tell us a little more that maybe wasn't discussed in the book about what it's like to live in poverty in the richest country in the world. As a child, and I can only speak from that childhood perspective, it's very easy to blame yourself 
for being in that situation, especially if you see people on TV and around you who have it a little bit better, you wonder if there's something inherently wrong with me. And I know now as an adult, there wasn't, but it is really hard to grow up with that and with that shame because the minute you have to keep something secret, whether that be poverty, whether that be abuse, whether it be undocumented status, the minute you have secrecy attached to something about yourself, you learn to be ashamed of who you are inherently. And once that is coded in you early on, as you come of age, that shame grows with you and gets embedded within you. And it can be really hard to disentangle. And for that reason, even when I made it out and became a successful lawyer, I still felt not just the shame, but also the poverty living inside me. To this day, I have a hard time going to the supermarket and just buying what I need. I feel this intense urge to buy all of the food in the store to make sure I'm never hungry again. There's that thought in my head, like, what if it happens again? Always. You, you, you always have the sense that poverty just breathing down your neck. And I have done a lot of processing and a lot of therapy and I've healed a lot of open wounds, but I am under no illusion that those scars will go away. They are now a part of me. And I can only hope that hungry, poor little kid can continue to guide me and inspire me in her wisdom. Wow. You know, that reminds me of my father, who kind of grew up in abject poverty in Alabama, shopped excessively you know every day he came home with food and to him it was a sense of pride my mom was like dude you're bringing in too much food it's, it's gonna go bad you know well i can't eat all this stuff uh, and to hear you kind of elucidate that same tendency like even though you're successful now you don't have to do this you still feel a pressing need to do this it, it's interesting how our past truly impact our future and how much hold our childhood experiences still have over us i mean yeah i have that shopping problem i also i can't throw out anything even if the 12 apples i bought in a shopping spree have rotted i can't throw it out because for some reason the fact that, that they're there tells me that i won't be that hungry kid again when really the healing work that i need to do is talk to that little child and tell her she's safe because I think all of us can relate to that. There was a moment in our childhood when we did not feel safe. And what can we do to parent that child now and make sure that that, that child feels secure? Beautiful. And our last question. Um, this is my fave. This is my baby. What have you intentionally done differently from your previous generation to make a better life? So for pretty much all of my life, especially after we came to the United States, my parents told me not to speak up, not to rock the boat, not to make waves. And as I mentioned, I have a rebellious spirit and dissident blood. So I, I didn't listen. But for many years, I did. I tried. I tried not to talk about being undocumented. I tried not to talk about being poor. And yet that secret grew and lived with inside me until it dominated my every move. Um, I think I have I have this line in my book that says illegality is stitched into my veins at this point because I've spent so much of my life running from away from it. And it wasn't until my late 20s that I realized until you heal 
the traumas that you have endured in your life that you have received from your parents and grandparents until you turn around and confront them instead of running from them, you will continue to pass it down to generation after generation after generation. So there was a day in 2016 when I woke up and said, it stops here with me. I want to confront everything that is woven in my blood and woven in my scars, put it down on paper so that my children and grandchildren know where they came from, but also so that they can be liberated and freed and empowered to write their own future and not one based on trauma. Ashe, Ashe, it's, um, wow, that's beautiful. And I keep using the term beautiful because I keep thinking about this beautiful book <laughs> that I'm truly enjoying. So I implore everyone to check out this book, Beautiful Country. We had the author with us today. Oh, man. And in the background right now is our beloved Brooklyn, my beloved Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn is a blood type. Pick up the book. Learn from it. There's a message of empowerment that our beautiful author has come up with. So definitely check out the book, learn from it and be empowered. You've been watching Get On Code, get on code, learn the code, teach the code. And the code is empowerment. Peace. This show was brought to you by Positive Vibes Incorporated, our consulting services. We do credit fixes. We do tax resolution. We lend private money and debt consolidation. So 